0: Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. As I say almost every Sunday, we are thankful. And I don't just say that. I don't just say that just to say it. We are thankful that you have joined us this morning. Over the past several weeks, we have spent time considering God's purpose and plan for the church. And in doing this, we have taken the time to review the pillars of our philosophy of ministry. We have titled... Uh, Keith and I have titled this series. We've shared this uh, this preaching. We have titled this series, "The Church, God's Abundant Harvest." It is our sincere hope and belief that if we are faithful to the Lord's purpose and plan for His church, He will bless His church with an abundant harvest. It's not just that we preach this sermon, these sermon series on. Uh, in November during Thanksgiving, obviously there's a connection there. But we also preach this sermon, these sermon series, knowing that if we are faithful to what God has planned for His church, for for His purpose for His church, that He will provide an abundant abundant harvest. Now we know that our Lord has promised, He has promised His people that the the fields are white for harvest. He said that in John four. He said he said. Uh, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. It is our hope and prayer that many will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior through the ministry of this church, through your ministry. It's not just the ministry, it's not just some separate thing that it's the ministry of the church. No, you are the church, you are the ministry. Many of you have joined us because you are seeking a church that is serious about knowing and living out the truth of God's Word. And we are confident that there are many in our city, many around our city, who have not bowed their knees to Baal, if, if you will. In other words, I believe, personally believe, there are many who are growing weary of the worldly philosophies that have infiltrated the churches. Whether or not they can articulate these things, they're looking for a church committed to the exaltation of God. They're looking for a church that's committed to the the exposition of Scripture. They're looking for a church that, that will equip the saints, and they're looking for a church that goes out and evangelizes the lost. Here at Grace Bible Church, we exalt and worship God by expositing His Word so that we will know His revealed will. Our goal is to equip the saints so that they, they can grow to be complete in Christ. We do this with the goal of helping each person in our midst, each person that's part of the body of Christ, to be pleasing to our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as each of you are equipped, we pray that the Holy Spirit will empower you to use your spiritual gifts to God's glory. As we live to please our Lord, we display Christ in a in a, in a rare, very real way. As we live to please our Lord, we display Christ to a watching world. We do this with the hope that our lives, paired with the message of the gospel, paired with the message of the gospel, we pray that our lives will be a pleasing aroma among those who are being saved. The Apostle Paul uses that very description in 2 Corinthians 2.14, He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. The the imagery that Paul is using there comes from the the strong and sweet smell of incense from censers in the triumph or victory parade. The smell was mixed with the the fragrance of crushed flowers uh, beneath the horse's hooves. Together, they produced a powerful aroma that filled the city around the procession. This, this parade, with its sweet aroma, signified a great triumph for the, for the emperor. In, in the same way, I want, you to, I want you to get this. In the same way, as believers, we are called to be a sweet aroma for God and His gospel to our city and to the world. And believe me, the world is here in our city. We just mentioned it this morning. We talked about it this morning. The nations are here. And as you preach the gospel, as you preach the gospel, you become a, a sweet, a powerful aroma to the triumph of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul goes on to say, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, who are perishing. God is pleased when we live faithfully before Him. In the words of John MacArthur, wherever God, God's servant is faithful and is, and is an influence for the gospel, God is pleased, end quote. Paul goes on to say that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one an aroma from death to death to the other, an aroma from life to life, and who is sufficient for these things? Lord, I mean, no one here is sufficient for these things. Yet He uses us to, to preach the gospel, the, the true gospel, which always produces two very different responses. The gospel message brings eternal life and ultimate glorification to those who are being called, while it is a stumbling stone of offense that brings eternal death to those who are perishing. Here at Grace Bible Church, we've seen both responses. Today we will baptize three dear saints who have responded to the call of Christ in repentance and faith. Their testimonies prove what happens when we live faithfully and we live obediently before our Lord proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. Now, before we do the baptisms, let's dive back into Scripture. Let's pray that God would give us an abundant harvest of new believers who come to know Him. And that he would be glorified by our service to him. Let me pray and we'll get started. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would be here with us. That your Holy Spirit would use the words that I preach. The words that I say. The words that I form with my mouth. That you would give them power. Lord, not because of me, not because of anything I've done. Not because of the, the cleverness of my words, of my speech, but because your word is powerful and it will not return void. We, we believe that as a body in Christ's name. Amen. As I just said, we've been studying the four pillars of our church's philosophy of ministry, which I would argue helps us understand our purpose, the, our Lord's purpose and plan for his church. Now last week we started looking at how our Lord carries out His plan for His church through godly leaders. Keith, Pastor Keith led us through <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 through to help us understand God's priority for leadership in the church. Those verses uh, give us the qualifications for men who desire the office of, of elder. In his sermon last week, Keith showed us that if a church is to become or is to be A pillar and support of the truth of God, then it must be, that it must have then a biblically organized leadership who meet the biblical qualifications for church leadership. Any man who pursues the office of elder pursues a a fine work. It is a sacred trust. Those men are to be above reproach. They are to be outstanding men of integrity, morally, ethically, and spiritually. They're Integrity must be seen in how they conduct themselves in their families and, and in the church and, and in, in uh, overall society. Morally, they are to be committed to sexual purity found within the context of marriage. They are to have well-ordered households, having children in submission with all dignity. If not married, they are to be, a, be men who are committed to sexual purity. Ethically, they are to, are to be considerate and, and peaceable men who are free from the love of money. Spiritually, they are to be mature believers who have been Christians long enough to avoid becoming conceited and falling into the condemnation of the devil. Now, you might ask yourself why God would require these qualifications. Well, elders have been given several critical responsibilities in the church. First, they are responsible for leading the church well. Well, Secondly, they are responsible to labor in the Word and teach the Word well. Uh, that, those are the first two responsibilities, but they're also responsible to, to pray for and to care for the sick. Uh, that's James 5.14. Elders are to, are to shepherd the, the flock of God by caring for each member. Elders are to be an example to the flock uh, by their godliness, They're to, to walk in, in godliness so that others may see their godliness and want to imitate it elders are also to to make plans and to uh, set policy for the church and elders are also uh, according to first timothy four are also to identify other leaders other men who god is raising up in the church to lead the church of god now i would argue that that elders have also been given the critical responsibility of equipping the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of christ that's Ephesians 4 12 and we saw that uh, a few weeks ago Said another way the elders have been given the awesome responsibility to proclaim Christ and admonish every man (coughs) Excuse me and teach every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ and in doing this The elders are to labor according to God's power which works through them Now all of this begs a question if the elders are to labor in preaching and teaching and equipping, then who is responsible to do the other work in the church? You know, the practical stuff. If if the elders are responsible to study the Word and, and to teach the Word and to, to pray for the saints and to shepherd the saints, then who is supposed to do the actual work? You know, the other stuff that it has to get done. Who is to work alongside the elders modeling spir- spiritual service? Who is to implement the doctrine and oversight of the elders in a very practical manner? Well, Paul gives this answer in First Timothy 3: 8 through 13. Now take your Bibles and turn to First Timothy chapter three, verse eight. The Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 8, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also be first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified. Not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In these verses, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13, through Paul then explains the qualifications of serving as a deacon in the church. Those who serve as deacons must then have, according to Paul, an excellent personal character, an exemplary spiritual life, an established Christian character, and an exceptional moral purity. Now, before we dive into the outline, let's take a few minutes to better understand the term translated deacon which Paul uses here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Now, I hope this will answer the question, who are the deacons? The, the Greek word translated deacons has the idea of servants. The word could be used as one, of one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction. It could also mean one who gets something done at, at the direction of a, a superior, as, a, as an assistant to someone in charge. The Greek word, along with its related terms, appears around 100 times in the New Testament. And in a vast majority of places, the words are translated service, or to, to serve, or various other ways. In, in Scripture, the, the word denotes service of any kind. The word group has a, a lot of versatility in the New Testament. The, the Greek terms are translated in several different ways. It could be administration, it could be cared for minister, servant, serve, service, preparations, relief, support, or even, in our case, deacon. Several times the, the biblical writers use the term to speak of serving food or tables. It was used this way, or it is used this way in John 2, of the servants serving at the wedding in Cana. And in Luke 4.39, where uh, Peter's mother-in-law served the disciples a, a meal meal, in Acts six verses one through seven, in a famous account that, that, uh, that Luke gives, he uses the term uh, to describe the men chosen by the apostles to serve tables so that they could devote themselves. The, the apostles could devote themselves to the word and to prayer. In Romans 13:4, Paul used the term to refer to governmental authority in the form of soldiers or, or of police officers. As you can tell then, uh, there is a, a wide range of uses for these terms uh, that, that uh, surround diakonos is the, the Greek term. In John twelve twenty six Jesus uses the term to show that following him also meant to serve him. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the, the Father will honor him. So there's a, there's a great honor in serving the Lord. And in that sense of the word, all Christians are to be servants of Christ. They are to be actively serving Him and and actively serving in His church. There's no exception. In 1 Corinthians 12, 5, Paul uses the term term in in this fashion when he says there are a a variety of ministries and, and the same Lord. Every Christian is called to serve the body of Christ in some way, in some form. A few weeks ago, we saw in ephesians four eleven and twelve that those who are called as elders of the church, as pastors and teachers of the church are charged with equipping the saints for the work of service within the body of Christ. It's a responsibility of the pastors to to come alongside and to equip so that you may serve in greater ways, that you may use your your gifts and, and Paul uses the term in, in this more specific sense he in Romans twelve sixty eight, 6-8, he gives a list of spiritual gifts, which includes the gift of service. It's funny that we clamor for these greater gifts, but there's a gift of service, which is just as great as any other gift. Any, anyone given the gift of service has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to perform a spiritual service. Paul may be using the term in this sense as he describes the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16 15. He says of, of the household of, of the Stephanus that they were the, the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for service to the saints. So all Christians then are called to be servants of Christ and, and the church. And, and some Christians have been given a spiritual gift, the spiritual gift of service. Now, that's the first two ways that it's used. A few in the church are called then to serve as deacons. As deacons. This group of people is described here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8-13. through They're also mentioned in Philippians 1, 1, and possibly, I believe, actually mentioned in Romans 16:1, and we'll see that in a moment. This group of people, the deacons, work alongside the elders of the church. They are in place to put into action, in in practicality, if you will, the elders' teaching and oversight. Now, I think this, this is a critical distinction for us to understand. I don't believe that it's Paul's intent for the elders to lead the church as a group. That is the responsibility of the elders. The deacons are to put the elder's direction into action in specific contexts. And I think that's, a, that's, an, incre- that's a, an incredibly important distinction. As such, a deacon may have responsibility to implement and serve in a particular ministry, but I don't see them leading ministry or leading the church as a group. You might call that the deacon board. Some churches have a, a deacon board. That responsibility, this responsibility to lead the church, falls to the elders. Now, I would argue that they are individually responsible to put into action the elders' teaching and oversight in particular ways. Some may be called to, as an example, uh, to, to, to lead in, in financial, the financial situation. Others are are called to care for the orphans and widows of the church. Others may be called to care for for the children, uh, etc. You get the point. They're called to specific ministry, to serve in a specific way. In the words of Andreas Kostenberger, a commentator, he says, Exegetically, the pastorals reflect a two-tier structure of church government with a plurality of pastors, elders, overseers, in charge with deacons now i'm going to show my hand a little bit here most likely male and female fulfilling servant roles in the church so they there specific roles in the church that the deacons fulfill now let's discuss the development of deacons as officially recognized servants in the church the the mention of the men in acts chapter 6 could be <coughs> the first mention of deacons in the church but We have to be careful. We have to be careful in how we understand and apply all that Luke describes in in Acts. These men were chosen to perform the specific task. If you turn to Acts chapter 6, you can if you want. Uh, They were were chosen to perform the, the specific task of serving the Hellenistic widows so the apostles could be freed up for the word and for prayer. Therefore, I would argue that that group of men foreshadowed the appointment of official deacons in the church. But they, they probably weren't at that point in church development. They probably weren't at you know, that early stage. They probably weren't considered official deacons. Now, as Acts progresses, Luke does mention deacons as a group in the text, while he mentions, or does not, that is, uh, mention deacons as a group in the, in the text, in the, in the text of Acts. Bali does mention elders on several occasions, so we see then that progression, uh, we see that, that that progression hadn't occurred to a point of actually having deacons as an official capacity. So therefore, it would seem that the deacons was, a, was something that developed as the church become, became more fully established. Now Paul wrote 1 Timothy about 30, day, 30 years, that is, after the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. So we need to recognize that the church developed over that time frame to a point where there was a need for deacons to be named in the church. As such, the only mention of deacons being elevated to a, a, an official status is found here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. The other possible mention is in Romans 16.1 where it is translated deacon, or it could be translated, it's translated servant in most of your text, could be translated deacon. In that verse, he says, Now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. So, in Romans 16, 1, the word translated by the Legacy Standard Bible, servant, could actually be translated deacon. Now, before we move on, that verse brings up a critical question. And we need to take some time to answer it. Are there to be women deacons? Well, look down at your text in 1 Timothy 3.11. Paul says, so if go, turn back to 1 Timothy 3.11 if you're not there. Paul says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful, faithful in all things. Now, some take Paul's description here as being applied to deacons' wives. The question is, though, what is his intent? Many of you asked me, have asked me over, the, over time how I interpret this text, and I've told you that I lean toward, slightly, I think I told somebody 51:49. I slightly lean toward Paul talking about women deacons. And after studying and doing the exegetical work on this passage, I am slightly more convinced that that is his intent those who hold to this being deacons wives point to the word translated women in the legacy standard bible in the nas and they they say and they're right that this could be translated women or wives this raises the question of which was paul's intent now a survey of trans- translations highlights that question several translations interpret the word as wives these include the New King James Version the New English Translation the Net Bible the ESV translates it that way and the Holman Christian Standard Bible does as well while the NIV translates it women and the NAS 95 which we did use before we turned to the Legacy Standard also translated it women And as we saw earlier, this Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates it women. Now, let me give you four reasons why I believe Paul is speaking of women deacons and not deacons' wives. First, as I mentioned, some wonder why Paul used the Greek word, which is generally translated as as women or wives. They point to this and say that he must be referring to deacons' wives. Well, here's here's the problem. The feminine form of Diakonos doesn't appear in Christian literature until A.D. 325. So Paul didn't have an actual word uh, in the feminine, that actual word in the feminine form to use in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have to remember that, that that this may be actually the reason that Paul uses the masculine form to describe Phoebe as a deacon in Romans 16:1. So here's the, here's the thing we have to remember. We have to remember that Christianity actually liberated women. Christianity gave women freedom. Therefore, Paul's use of Phoebe as a servant, even if it wasn't meant, to, even if he didn't mean it to be a deacon, his use of Phoebe as a servant was just extraordinary. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Now, second, and I think this is probably the most powerful argument. Paul does not use a possessive pronoun here. Now, I, again, sometimes we have to get into the grammar of, of the text, and, and I think that's good, but I know it, sometimes people go, that's grammar, I don't want to do that. But here's, here's what we have to understand. Most of the translations that translate the word as wives supply the pronoun by translating the passage their wives. But what we have to understand is, the possessive pronoun translated there is not in the text. It doesn't exist in the Greek text. Of these translations, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does the best in translating what's actually in the text. So, of the translations that actually translate wives, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does the best job of, of bringing out what the, the text actually says. He said that that translation says, wives. Two or wives likewise, but they use the word two, must be worthy of respect. And he goes on. Now I would argue that that actually highlights the awkwardness and ambiguity uh, of understanding this as a reference to the deacons' wives, because he doesn't say deacons' wives. He doesn't say their wives. He says he uses the word translated wives, likewise or li- wives too. So therefore, it would be awkward. If, if he is if if he's referring to uh, wives, because he, why wouldn't he have used the the pronoun, the possessive pronoun? Does that make sense? You can nod your head if you'd like. Third third reason, I believe that he's talking about women deacons. I would argue that Paul's grammar indicates that he intends to address women deacons. Now we've already seen part of that with the possessive pronoun, but you also may notice that Paul uses the Greek word translated "likewise" in many. English text. He does the same thing in First Timothy three eleven. So in three eight, you may notice that he uses this word likewise. In three eleven, he uses it as well. In his letters, Paul normally uses that term likewise to set apart distinct groups. Yeah, so in First Timothy two nine, he, he uses it to set apart the men from the women. In Titus two three, he uses it to set apart older men from older women. Uh, in Titus 2.6, he does the same thing to set apart the younger men. In our passage, he seems to be setting apart women as a subset of the deacons. So there's the group of deacons as a whole, and then he's setting apart, when he says likewise, he's setting apart uh, the, deca, the women deacons as a subset of, that whole, of the whole structure. Now, that's third. Fourth. I would argue that he uses purposeful structure or flow in this passage to show this. You may notice that he addresses deacons as a group from 1 Timothy 3, 8-10, with a possible exception at 3.10, and we'll see that in a moment. In these verses, in those 8-10, through he gives general requirements for being a part of the group of deacons. Then in 3.11, he shifts specifically to women, And in that verse, he addresses issues that have similarities to the general issues, but they are more specific to the women. Then he shifts to address men specifically in verse 12. In that verse, he addresses issues that are specific to men, being the husband of one wife and leading his household well. And then he shifts back in in verse 13 to generally address the deacons as a group. Now, what that structure does is it allows him to address the deacons as an overall group, uh, you know, the requirements of a deacon, but it also gives him the ability to address specific requirements for men versus those who are women. Again, I believe this is purposeful because the men and women are not involved in the same types of service. And also, I think we all would, uh, would agree that men and women tend to struggle with sin in different ways. Therefore, I mean, that's just general tendency. Therefore, Paul addresses them more generally as a group while addressing more specific issues for the men versus the, the issues for the women. So, with all of this, with all four of those reasons, I would argue that Paul allows for women as deacons in the church. But, they are, very, they are limited in the ways that they can serve. They cannot teach and lead or lead men for that would be improper yet women can faithfully serve in a variety of critical ministries they are encouraged to serve in capacities such as care for the elderly for elderly believers care for sick believers care for children care for the poor hospitality in the church and in their homes they, are, they can be responsible for teaching other women and for teaching the children, and they can be responsible for some administrative work. It's amazing to me that in Romans 16, 1, Paul probably trusted Phoebe to deliver the letter of Romans uh, to the church at, at Rome. That would have been an incredibly high honor and a great responsibility for Phoebe. Now, again, what we have to understand is, is that, that Christianity placed women at a, high, at a high place. And as we will see, deacons, both men and women, have a high calling in the church. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this high calling by declaring, I would rather be a deacon of a church than Lord Mayor of London. End quote. I hope that you see that, and I hope that as we go through this that you'll see that deacons, that the deacon ministry is critical to the functioning of the church. And here in First Timothy chapter 3, then Paul gives the qualifications of those who are called to be deacons. As with the elders, these are spiritual qualifications having to do with their character. In the words of Dale Ralph Davis, he says, Isn't it telling that the deacon qualifications almost totally stress godliness rather than giftedness, character rather than skills. According to Paul, then, those who serve as deacons must have an excellent personal character. Look at verse 8. Look at your text in verse 8. He says, deacons likewise. As we have seen, he uses this, uh, this, this phrase, deacons likewise, as a transition to introduce a new category of, of leadership distinct from the elders in this section Paul gives the spiritual qualifications for for deacons now look back again at your text he says that that deacons must be must be dignified must be dignified the greek word translated dignified can mean serious or or even stately uh, they are people deacons are to be people considered to be worthy of respect and honor they are a noble people a, a dignified and a, a serious people they are dignified in that they have a, a quality that makes a quality of their character that is that makes people stand in awe of them and ha- and how they carry themselves this is not a pride this has nothing to do with pride this is how people uh, see them uh, it's not how they, they they portray themselves as much; as it is who they are. Now, this doesn't mean that they're to be a, a, a cold or or heartless or, or without joy. It does mean, though, that they're not to be a, a to be silly people uh, who make light of of serious spiritual matters. They need to be a, a person that you can say, "Go and do this," and you know that they'll take it seriously and and they'll walk seriously, carrying out. The duties that they've been given in other words deacons are to be people who are serious minded carrying themselves in a dignified manner look back at your text in verse 8 deacons are not though to be double-tongued not to be double-tongued this means that they're not to to speak out of both sides of their mouth said another way they're not to be people who say one thing to one person or group and say another thing to someone else you know they say something over here to make somebody happy over here, but then they say something over here to make somebody else happy, but it's two completely different things. No, they need to be consistent in, in their words. They need to be consistent in their speech, no matter who they are talking to. Uh, they have to. We have to understand that the deacons may be exposed to sensitive information, or whether it be financial information, or whether it be or whether it be information about those who are struggling, uh, maybe financial information about someone or whatever, or, or health information. Well, they, they are going to know those things, and they need to be people who can be ultimately trusted with that type of information. They, they cannot be the type of person who speaks out of turn. Their, their speech must be characterized by integrity and honesty. Look back at your Bibles. Paul says that the deacons are not... The ones who indulge in much wine. The the word indulging could be understood as addicted to. Other other translations use the phrase given to. The Greek tense used here shows that indulging in alcohol is not to be the deacon's habitual practice. Uh, They would rather abstain. They they would rather not give people the the reason to to stumble. Uh, The deacon... The deacon uh, cannot allow alcohol to unduly influence their life. The, the deacon understands that, that he must keep his mind clear for service to the Lord. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to be in a, in a state of, of drunkenness because ne- the, the deacon never knows when he might be called upon to, to go and help someone in need. Look back at your text. The deacon is also not to be fond of dishonest gain. The deacon must not look at money with greediness. Uh, this this word, the, translated the, the this word, has the idea of one who is shameless, shamelessly greedy for money. Throughout church history, deacons have routinely handled the offering as part of their official duties. They would also take much of this money and distribute it to those who had need, and including widows and orphans. Uh, Those who handle money must be free from the love of it. Since deacons regularly handle money, they must not have an undue desire for it, since the temptation is always there to to steal it. I'm always reminded of Judas in that way. We we should be certain that Paul is not talking about whether a man has money or not. He is only speaking of the love for money. In the words of J.C. Ryle, we love money with it. We can love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. End quote. The deacon must not be one who loves money. Look down at your text in verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. We've already established that women can be deacons. Paul writes, Women likewise must be dignified not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. He says that, that these women must be dignified. It's the same word he used in verse 8. Again, deacons are to be people who are serious-minded, carrying themselves in a, a dignified manner. In this verse, Paul highlights this quality for the women. He also says that they are not to be malicious gossips, this, this could be translated slanderers. This is a person who makes false statements for the purpose of damaging uh, one's reputation. The, this Greek word is often used to describe the devil. In Matthew 4, 1, it's translated devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the slanderer, the devil. This word highlights the need for the women to control their tongues. They're, they're never to slander others. Do it, doing so would make them unfit for service, especially service as deacons. Uh, Paul goes on to say they're to be, they, that they are to be temperate. This word has the idea of being self-controlled or, or level-headed. It could also have the idea of being moderate in their consumption of alcohol. But uh, but they ultimately are to be faithful in in all things. They must be those who can be trusted with the lives of of other people, especially the women. Uh, you have to think in terms of of the types of ministry they would be involved in, uh, entrusted to care for the sick, entrusted to care for the needy. Uh, they'd be entrusted to the, to the care of our children. I mean, it's 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 an amazing ministry. We've all heard of of. Stories where women have taken advantage of their position of authority by abusing the, the, the vulnerable. Any woman entrusted with uh, the defenseless and with need, the needy must be faithful in all things. Any woman entrusted with administrative duties must be trustworthy to do this privileged service. Again, I think of uh, Phoebe in Romans 16. Any deacon must be a person with excellent moral character where they cannot serve as deacons. Let's look at the second of four qualifications for those who are called deacons. According to Paul, those who serve as deacons must have an exemplary spiritual life. Now look back at verse 9. The deacon must be one who is holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul's reference to the mystery of the faith refers to the content of New Testament teaching. When he uses the word mystery, he speaks of of truth revealed in the New Testament that was previously hidden in the Old Testament. This truth includes critical tenets of the Christian faith, the incarnation of the Messiah. He says that in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The one who would serve as a deacon must understand uh, that 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 is who we are proclaiming. We're proclaiming uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, who was vindicated in the spirit, who was seen in the angels, who is being proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory even today. The mystery also speaks of Jesus' dwelling within the believer. In Colossians 1:26 and 27, he says, The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now had been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And you know what the mystery is? He says, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The deacon, the deacon must believe that Christ lives within the believer. He must, be, he must have a, a, a clear conscience about these things. This mystery also includes the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. He says that in Ephesians 3, verses 4-6. through 6. Putting all this together, the mystery of the faith refers to the fullness of New Testament teaching about salvation in Christ. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, along with the mystery of the church being made up of of Jews and Gentiles of every nation. Those who serve as deacons, no less than the elders, those who serve as deacons must be convinced of these truths in their minds and they must adhere to these truths with a clear conscience. Said another way, said another way, they must joyfully believe the apostles' teaching with no reservations. They must joyfully believe the teaching of the church without doubts. They must have full assurance of the faith without any undue doubting. Look back at your text in verse 13. Look down at verse 13, that is, kind of bouncing around a little bit. For those who serve well, as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Clearly, what Paul wants the church to recognize is that it is, a, it is an incredible, it is a great spiritual privilege to serve as a deacon. Every Christian, I think, I think Keith said this last week, every Christian should strive to be people a person who is spiritually qualified as to be a deacon or an elder. We are not to strive to be lifted up, but we are to strive to be faithful in our walk, which will result in a high standing in the church. According to Scripture, those who serve the church humbly will be exalted in the church. Listen to Paul's words in First Thessalonians five, twelve, and 13. He says, but we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. You see, we are to recognize each other's work. We are to recognize that spiritual service that each each person gives, that, that as they work, as they serve the Lord faithfully, we are to recognize that and exalt them in that work. Regard them as Paul says, very highly in love. I don't mean to to, to puff them up. and And First Peter five six helps us understand that 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 that, they're, that this is a humble service, a humble service that will be exalted by God. First Peter five six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. James says much the same thing in James four ten. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, this is a a dignified type of of service that people recognize in in your work and in your character. Let's look at the third of four qualifications of those who would be called deacons. Those who would serve as deacons must have an established Christian character. Look at your text in verse 10. 1 Timothy 3.10. And these men also must first must be tested. Must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. The Greek word translated be tested has the idea of being approved after testing or critical examination. It also has the idea of of drawing a conclusion about the worth of something on the, the basis of testing. You could use this word to uh, speak of the testing of gold for purity and value. The verb tense here indicates that this is a testing that is to occur prior to identifying someone as a deacon. Their their lives and service within the church must be evaluated for purity by the church, the body of Christ. Yet this this testing is to be an ongoing testing in the life of the believer. They, They are only... Uh, they are only to, uh, to serve as deacons if they are first tested and found to be faithful. But this this testing is not a one-time uh, ban- shot, and then we're done. Uh, the verb tense indicates that Paul intends this to be an ongoing process. Look back at your text. When Paul says, uh, let them serve as deacons, the, he uses the present tense, which highlights that this is not to be a, a lifelong appointed appointment as deacon they are they are to uh, uh, serve as deacons if they are above reproach and like the elders deacons must not have any any major blot on their lives that they may be where they may be rightly accused of <coughs> sin especially habitual sin deacons are not responsible to teach doctrine as the elders are but they are responsible to carry out that teaching uh uh, the teaching of the elders in in practical ways therefore therefore paul says they must be above reproach and that must be fully established and it must be witnessed by the church earlier i said that 1 Timothy three eight through ten contain general requirements for serving as deacons. You may have noticed, and I alluded to it earlier. You may have noticed that the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates this phrase in uh, in this phrase in in verse ten, uh, and these men. Now, I agree with that translation because Paul uses the masculine pronoun to agree with the masculine noun translated deacons. Remember I said earlier there was no feminine form of that noun. Now, I would agree with the, the Legacy Standard Translation because it brings out Paul's actual Greek text. But, therefore, I think that, that here, what I really think is going on is that Paul is using the masculine generally. Like we would say, all men, really referring to mankind. I think that's what he's doing here. But but it's interesting because the the actual word for men is not in the text, is what I'm getting at. And other translations, including the English Standard Version, the the NET, and the Holman Christian Standard Version, they all do this by not bringing out the masculine. They say, in the ESV it says, and let them also be tested first. The, The New English Translation, the Net Bible says, and these also must be tested first. They don't bring out the masculine. In, in 1 Timothy 3:10, and they, that is the deacons, they must also be tested first. So we see here that in 3:10, I think he's, again speaking from eight to 10, I think he's speaking generally, even though that uh, the legacy of Standard Bible brings out the word, or the, the word men. It's just not in the text, though, but it is masculine, so I understand why they did it. So Those who serve as deacons then, lastly, must have an exceptional moral purity. Look at your text in verse 10 again. Look back at it. It says, And these men must also first be tested, and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, we can't miss the the moral aspect of living a life above reproach. Those who serve as deacons should must be then sexually pure. They must be those who abstain from sexual immorality. They must exemplify Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Any deacon would be a person above reproach who is sexually pure, who knows how to, who, who does abstain from any, uh, any hint of sexual immorality and that they know uh, they don't live in lustful passion. Now look down at your text in verse 12. Again, I would argue that in this verse he's speaking directly to the men. He says deacons must be husbands of only one wife leading their children and their households well. Uh, Again, as with the elders, uh, any man who is called to be a a deacon uh, is literally to be a one-woman man. In other words, they are to exemplify moral purity by being devoted to their wives in all purity. They are uh, to be devoted to their families by leading their children and by leading their entire household well. That is not to say, as with the elders, and Keith brought this out last week, that they can't be deacons if they don't have a wife and family. Yet we understand that having a wife and having a family is a proving ground for uh, the deacons' service to the church. Well, as we begin to wind down, it's critical, it's absolutely critical that we grasp, the high calling, both that last week we saw of the elders in preaching, teaching, and leading in the Word and prayer. But I would argue that it's just as critical that we understand the task of the deacons as being just as crucial in the life of the church. The only difference is teaching. The only major difference. R.C. Sproul says that, that very thing. Since the ability to teach is not repeated in the qualifications for deacons, it seems that teaching is the one function that sets the overseer's task apart from the deacons. Said another way, godly deacons take the burden of practical ministry off the elder's plate. They have the high calling of implementing the ministry. Therefore, they are called to be godly in character and righteous in their actions. Having said all of this, above all, deacons must be believers in Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.9, we saw that they are to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they are to be fully devoted believers in Christ Jesus. Said another way, They must believe the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. And they live it out practically as saints in the Lord. In just a few moments, we're going to to baptize three dear saints in the Lord. But before we do, I want to remind you of the gospel that each of these saints are publicly proclaiming. The gospel that each of you, if you desire or want to serve as a deacon, The gospel that each of you that want to be in that capacity would hold to. In Romans 5.8, 5.8 and 9, Paul writes, Paul proclaims, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Beloved, if you are in Christ, God has demonstrated His love toward you by sending His Son to die on the cross. He didn't He didn't know sin. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't become a sinner on the cross. He was the, the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And if you are in Christ, according to Paul in Romans 5, you have been justified. You have been made right with God by His blood. Before you became a believer, and if you were here today and you're not a believer, this is true of you. Before you became a believer, you stood condemned before a holy and righteous God. Paul says that we were His enemies. Yet, you're saved, you shall be saved from his wrath through Jesus' sacrifice. I love, I love the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, We are certain that there is forgiveness because there is a gospel. And the very essence of the gospel lies in the proclamation of the pardon of sin. End quote. Each and every one of you here Have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of you, I'm convinced, have been covered by the the sacrifice of Christ. Many of you have, have been justified by the blood, the shed blood of Christ. There's some of you sitting here today, I'm persuaded to believe that there's some of you sitting here today who have not believed, who have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Who have not trusted in his sacrifice on the cross, who have not believed in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection in power. And you remain an enemy of God. And I can promise you who loses that battle. Paul writes. Paul writes in Romans 5:10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also boast in God, that the God, God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation, Christian, if you're sitting here today, Paul is saying that you have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ. You have been justified. In other words, you have been made right with Him. As the song that we sing many times says, Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. His righteous life has been credited to our accounts. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you're here today and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is true of you. That is true of you. If you're here today and you don't know Him, you stand condemned before him. There are going to be three baptisms here today. And of these three, of these three, I think you're going to hear these three give the same message. There was a time when they stood condemned. And there was a time that they came to know the Lord, justified before him, and now they stand in righteousness before him, not because of deeds that they've done, but because of what Christ. Has done. Heavenly Father, as we transition now to a time of baptisms, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as you'd be with these three as they proclaim what you have done in their lives. I pray it would be clear, I pray it would be encouraging. I pray that those who have not taken the step of salvation would do so. Would do so even now. Even as they regard what these dear saints are saying. In Christ's name, amen.